Well, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me again to John, the Gospel of John, as we continue our study. Uh, what Chris is alluding to is the fact that I intended to do the entirety of this passage in one week, and that's what my notes reflect, that I'm going to handle all of this through probably verse 11, uh, and then do the triumphal entry next week. But after further study, that's just not going to happen. Uh, not so much because I have a lot of content to add to the passage, because that simply isn't really the case. What is more driving this is the fact of how others have abused this passage, and we want to be uh, careful to be balanced. It is, it is easy to go one direction too far, even if it seems like it's a good direction. And so we want to have a balanced approach to this, and so sometimes not only do I, we have to teach what it says, we also have to say what it isn't saying. And this is a very precious passage. It is listed for us in, in many of the Gospels. And, and, uh, and we have an event that we have put there purposely to honor one person, um, but also to honor the action of that one person, the faith of that one person, but also to reflect upon the nature of worship and the nature also of uh, expressing thanksgiving. And then, ultimately, we also have preparation of Jesus Christ for what's coming. And, of course, we are told by John right away, six days before the Passover. So we are in the region we call the Passion Week. And so we are six days from Passover, and we can hopefully understand that Christ's sacrifice was the Passover. He was the Passover lamb. And so we are six days from that event and so it is not on the distant horizon, it is right at hand. Uh, we are coming into a time when all of Israel is gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate not a day, Passover really isn't a day, it is a week's worship. And so some question whether this is a week before Passover week or if it is a week before Passover day. Um, but uh, the Feast of Passover is really the Feast of Unleavened Bread, concluding with Passover and so all Israel's gathered there. It's one of the three high feasts of Israel that every male is supposed to get to Jerusalem for annually. So there's three of them. This is one of them. There are, many, there are several others. These aren't the only three feasts of Israel, but these are the three high ones. And so we come to this, and, and all these people are gathering, and we're going to see them a little bit later on. Uh, we've already seen some of it in chapter 11, verse 55. It says, many... Uh, the Jews were near, many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, and they sought Jesus. So there's already this influx of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem to uh, prepare themselves and to participate fully in this Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. Uh, more are going to be coming uh, throughout this whole period, uh, Sometimes because of travel delays, sometimes because of other circumstances beyond their control, they're going to be arriving throughout the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The goal and ambition is to be there for Passover day. You don't want to miss that. The problem was is there was a little bit of contention about what day is Passover day. And that actually still goes on today. I know we have an official one. Um, but the, even today, there's some discussion between some of the more orthodox Jews and the more mainstream Jews about which day is actually Passover, uh, and there was a one or two day discrepancy there. And that was even the case back in Jesus' days. So we have some of that 
accounting for some of what we see in multiple Passovers seemingly being uh, uh, conducted during uh, Jesus' Passion Week. But we come to this event, and remember, Jesus has been out in Ephraim, uh, that's to the north, a village up there, kind of laying low um, because his public ministry in terms of his works outside of his own resurrection has pretty much come to a close. And now the Jews are not just inciting uh, occasionally to take him on the spur of the moment. They have a plan now to take him. They have a fully conceived, fully motivated, remember they got their motivation last week, by the prophetic utterance of the high priest, Caiaphas, who said, you know, one man should die for the nation. So now we, we are purified in our motives. Now we can say, oh, we're doing this for everyone's good. And so now we can hunt down Jesus Christ with uh, a pure heart, uh, and with a clear conscience in their own mind, um, which, of course, wasn't true. And, and we're going to be introduced to another character very similar to that, uh, among Jesus' disciples here in a few weeks. Maybe next week. We'll see how far I get this morning. And so we come to this, and we see here's a, a Jesus kind of laying low. Uh, again, not for months and months, just perhaps a few couple of weeks, perhaps. And now he's coming down into uh, the Jerusalem area, and instead of going in, he arrives at Bethany. And, of course, we know Bethany from the last chapter, that this is where Lazarus was raised from the dead. This is where he and Mary and Martha, his sisters, reside. But it's not their place that he goes to. And in fact, the evidence is, well, we know from the other Gospels, that it was Simon the leper's home. And so, uh, which kind of startles you. Got Simon the leper has a home in Bethany. Who knew? Well, we don't know if he got the home after he stopped being Simon the leper, started becoming Simon the ex-leper, um, or if it was at the family home. Um, but, uh, and we don't know the relationship between Simon and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know that relationship at all. But here he, Jesus has this invitation to come into Simon the lep, ex-leper's home and to have a celebration kind of in preparation for a wonderful Feast of Unleavened Bread. Not an uncommon event. And think about all that has just transpired recently in Bethany. We have a lot to be thankful for. And so this gathering um, wasn't just a happenstance thing, uh, but rather uh, he comes to Bethany uh, and they had made him a supper. It says in verse 2 of chapter 12, there they made him a supper and by they is the people of Bethany. Not only Simon the leper who is offered up his home to be the, the location for it, but we're going to find later on that Martha is going to be serving there in this banquet. Uh, if you want to call it this special meal, to honor Jesus Christ and to really express thanksgiving for what has happened in Bethany in recent weeks. And so we, we set this stage and we, we come into a, a very carefully planned, prepared meal to uh, honor Jesus Christ. We have a man who was once a leper, who is no longer a leper. Does he have a reason to honor Jesus Christ, to express his thanksgiving? Absolutely. How does he express that? He expresses that by the offering of his home and setting up um, what really becomes a very uh, extravagant meal, really. And we're going to hear that word a lot. 
Uh, we're going to then uh, see the people bringing in and preparing foods, uh, and they have set up enough of tables of honor to include another person of honor who is also invited to this meal, and that is Lazarus himself. And so Lazarus becomes, remember, one of the powerful testimonies about, the, about Jesus Christ and who he is. One who was dead four days, and Jesus Christ raised him from the dead. And everyone saw it. Did everyone believe because they saw Lazarus walking, a dead man walking? You think, well, I should really reconsider my view of this man. No, not everyone believed. Even if God should raise the dead, it will not make people believe. And I have encountered many people, and I've had conversations, and seemingly the more intelligent people are like, well, if I saw this, I was like, that's not true. You know, well, if, I, if this happened, and I remember we were in Boston, and we were in Airbnb, and there was a couple of guys from Scotland there also, and we had a long conversation with them. I was like, what would it take for you to believe? Well, if something miraculous happened, like in public, and, and, I, and we saw that, I was like, Okay, and, and I used the thing that I learned from Dave. I said, so how many times does that have to happen? Does that have to happen for everybody? Or how many times would that have to happen for you to believe in Jesus? Well, just that one time. I was like, so what about the next generation? What about your children? Should it happen to your children as well? Well, no, I saw it. They should take my word for it. I was like, well, why don't you take people's word for it? That it happened. We write it down, we record it, and we pass it on to say this is what happened. You see, even the people who saw it happen, they did not all believe. Many believed, but others ran to the Pharisees and said, hey, look what this guy's doing. And the Pharisees didn't respond. The Sanhedrin didn't respond by saying, oh, what have we been totally mistaken about this man? This is the Son of God. We should be worshiping him. No, they planned with even more hatred to destroy him. And so these gathered together are a gathering of believers. They are not the Sanhedrin. They are not the marginal people that watched it all but didn't believe. These are the people that came there for a singular purpose, and that was to honor Jesus Christ. Simon the leper does it by providing his home. Martha is going to do it by serving uh, the meal, uh, but a different kind of service than the last time when she was all harried about it and all flustered and upset. No, she's faithfully doing it because she's responded to the rebuke of Jesus Christ and we never find her that way again. We only find her that one time and then from then on, she has a different relationship and she is always in this, in, in a right framework of mind and of spirit to serve the Lord, even during the death of Lazarus himself. Her statements of faith are, are superb. I know he will be resurrected in the last day because you are the resurrection of life. She believed in Jesus Christ. So she's expressing her thanksgiving for Jesus' work not only in her life but in her family and particularly in her brother Lazarus raised from the dead. And the indication is he is probably a younger one and he is seated in a place of honor at the table. It says Lazarus was there and that's something a young man to... To be noted, it would be that he didn't really belong there because he's probably too young to be seated there, but he was an honored guest at this meal as well because of him being the testimony 
of the power of God among men. So there they are. The scene is, is laid out there. Martha is serving. Lazarus is sitting with Jesus at the table, which is pretty incredible. And they're preparing for this meal that uh, is presented again in honor of Jesus Christ. And in comes Mary. And now things are going to get a little outlandish. Mary is going to come in and do a series of things that is going to captivate the attention of everyone for a little bit. But that wasn't her purpose. Her purpose wasn't really to bring attention to herself at all. And in fact, uh, her demeanor and her actions demonstrate to us that she too has responded to Jesus' gentle rebuke. Remember the last time Jesus and Mary met that Mary, uh, her attitude, her speech, her, her countenance, her, her, uh, everything about her uh, grieved Jesus. It says that he troubled his spirit. And, she, and that's where we find that verse, Jesus wept. That was really our last contact with Mary. And now we've got a couple of weeks have passed, and, and now uh, we have this meal at Simon the leper's house honoring Jesus. And, and G- Mary's been in those environments before. She sat at Jesus' feet and just listened to him, but that wasn't what she was about today. She wanted to demonstrate something. She, the last contact she had with Jesus, she was the one that grieved his spirit along with the others who grieved as if they had no hope. Remember, she was the representation of despair that caused Jesus to weep, that troubled him. And now she wants to communicate something very real has changed in her life. She went from being a, a careful listener that just enjoyed listening to Jesus' stories and teaching. And there's people in churches throughout this land that just go to church because they enjoy listening to it. You might, it might shock you, but that's what they go for. They just enjoy listening. They have their favorite radio uh, preacher or TV preacher, internet preacher. Uh, they just enjoy listening to them. They listen to them. Um, But then she had that very gentle rebuke. You might say, I don't see a rebuke in there at all. Oh, when Jesus weeps over you, that is a rebuke. He wept over Jerusalem because of their unbelief. And it was a very gentle rebuke. And she responded. And this is her response. I'm going to come into this room full of people, a room to honor Jesus Christ. It is certain that his feet have been washed because you would not have an honored guest come in without doing that. Someone else had done that. That was an unbelieving Pharisee. There's no way this group of believers was going to let that happen. He had already been prepared and and brought in with honor and seated at the table. And there's Lazarus, her her brother as well. And she comes in and takes um, this precious perfumed oil Verse 3, Mary took a pound, it says there. Um, that's approximate, it's not quite that much. Uh, I'm sorry, that's approximate to the measurements of the, of the Hebrew or Greek measurements uh, that we do have. A very costly oil of spikenard, 
anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And we're not going to get any farther than that in the text. Um, well, we're going to reference a few other things about its costliness. But we find Mary coming in. And uh, uh, whether it's a pound or 12 ounces, between 12 ounces and 16 ounces of spikenard, um, what is important that you realize is its value. We don't value perfumed oil like that. It is one of the ways of, uh, of storing treasure. Uh, this is why when you see the kings bringing to Jesus, the, the magi bringing to Jesus, what, gold, we go, yeah, gold, but frankincense and myrrh, those are perfumed oils. And they were highly traded and sought after commodities. It is how you invested in wealth. Um, it was uh, one of the main mechanisms of doing that. And in fact, that was your savings plan. You didn't have an IRA. You had this pot of oil. And we were told how much it, its value was. It was a year's wages. That's about its value. So let's insert our modern value system onto what she just is getting ready to pour out. A year's wages. It would take a year of not spending any wages on anything to buy this one commodity. This quantity of spikenard. Okay, so you insert your year. You I say, what's a year's wages? Well, what is our average year's wage? I don't know. Is it like 70000 now, 50000 I don't know what an average. I know if you get below thirty, I think you're in the poverty side, so it's got to be higher than that. So let's just say $75,000 a year. Can we say that in America? Year's wage? 60? Something like that. That's her offering for the day. That's what she's prepared to pour out. What would take a year of savings. Now, I don't know how many of you have a year's worth of your income in savings. You're kind of looking, oh, maybe in your retirement account, you have a year's income worth in savings. Um, some of you might not, uh, I mean, one of the rules of thumb we always talk about how to decide how much life insurance you should have. Uh, that's quotes, you should, quote unquote, should have. Um, and they always base it upon, well, what's your annual pay? And you should have this many times your annual pay uh, in life insurance. Um, but most people don't even carry that much. What's the evidence of that? Because they only have enough money to bury people in this community. Because they're out there fundraising on the corners when someone dies in their family because they can't afford to bury them. And so what we find out is that she is bring an extravagant, lavish gift. And this kind of worship, this worship that is responsive to rebuke, it recognizes I was so wrong. I didn't 
trust in God like I should have, but I want to communicate to this one who is more precious to me than anything that I completely trust in you is to pour out lavishly upon your person the thing that we might trust in for our savings. I'm going to pour it all out before the Lord and on the Lord, and I am going to show I completely trust in you. And she takes this extraordinarily expensive gift. The savings of the family, even. And brings this lavish gift. And she's going to use it entirely. John records what's going to happen at the feet of Jesus. The others record that it began at the head. She anointed the head, she anointed the feet, she anointed Jesus Christ with this lavish oil. And with the quantity that she's talking about, that would be appropriate. And you might say, well, one says the feet, one says the head. Oh, they're in conflict. With this quantity of oil that she's talking about, she did it all. And we're not familiar with anointing the head as well, but anointing the head is to designate what? Kingship. You are my king. I will anoint your head with oil. It is a practice done not only formally to anoint, to uh, associate with kingship, but it is part of, of, the, of, of good grooming in the day. It was part of what kept you in the desert land in a, in a time of, in those times, it was, it was used as part of your health treatment. That you are anointed with oils and balms. This is part of what kept you healthy. Granted, it wasn't the spikenard. Usually it was just olive oil. That was inexpensive and handy. But she's taking perfumed oil from the, from the plant nard, which is probably from India, uh, is what the plant we've really identified as that, as a nard plant. And, and perfumed, and, and she's taken this and making a declaration, he's my king. But then to go even further, what is the, 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 the part of the body, not only the head, but the feet, to be anointed with oil? Um, again, she's going to humble herself before him. And so we have two attributes of worship here that we want to talk about. One is the lavishness of worship. And the other one is a humility required to worship. And these two seem to be in opposition to one another, but they are not. You see, because when someone comes out and is lavish in their worship, we tend to draw our attention to that and to them. But that is not the intention of lavish worship. The the intention of that kind of extravagance is to bring glory to God. And we have this repeated for us over and over again in Scripture, the difference between true, extravagant worship done in humility versus extravagant worship done for self-aggrandizement. And you have to look at the worship and make a determination, not only of other people's worship, but of your own worship. Am I engaging this for my own attention-seeking, or am I engaging this to bring glory to the Father? Now, I want to share with you 
there's a huge spectrum. I don't know if I'm going to get to it in, really, five minutes? No, that can't, is that clock right? Oh, my goodness. Okay, ten minutes. This is going to go in the next week. So here we have Mary wanting to communicate her love for Jesus Christ, her faith in Jesus Christ, and she's going to do it humbly, but it's going to be penetrating. It's lavish. It's, it's extravagant. She's going to be criticized for it because they're going to question her motives. But I want you to notice this balance point. And I want to contrast it and compare it to some other examples in Scripture. Okay? First of all, I want you to notice that extravagant worship is not the norm. But there's, also, there's always cost to worship. There is costliness to worship. There should always be costliness. Um, in Old Testament Israel, you were never to come before the Lord without an offering. Now, there was offerings for poor people that were less costly than uh, the main offering. So if you couldn't afford this, you could bring this. Right? So they did every, but there's always a cost. You did not come empty-handed to the temple to worship. You brought a sacrificial lamb. You brought, and it doesn't matter what you came there to do. You might have bring a drink offering, a grain offering. You had some kind of offering. Whenever you came to the temple, you brought an offering with you. And so we find that, that, um, if you came to dedicate your child, you brought an offering to go with that. If you came as, as to rejoice over some event in your life, you brought an offering to do that with. If you came to, to repent of a sin in your life, you brought an offering. Now, a burnt offering in that case. Different nature. But you always had a cost involved in worship. And one of the premier statements of that is when David says, I will not offer up to God that which costs me nothing. That isn't worship. So while lavishness is occasional, costliness is always present in worship. It should always cost us something to worship God. We should be willing to bring to him our offerings, our sacrifices. One of the fearful things of Christianity today, especially in, West, in Western Christianity, is we have divorced that. We have not recognized that worship should cost me because it is a demonstration of my value of not the preacher, not the, the, the building. It is my value of God's attention. That I do not come empty-handed to worship. I bring whatever I have, I lay it before his feet. And by the way, this is going to be true in heaven as well. Mr. Roberts spoke about losing rewards in Sunday school this morning. And, well, okay, so I lose a few. You don't understand. Those are the tools of your worship for all eternity, casting your crowns before him. 
over and over and over and over and over and over again. You're going to lay out before him, this is how I served you, and every honor I got, I give to you. Because worship is always costly. And it is shameful that we in Christianity have, have divorced costliness from worship. It's not about what I give, it's about what I get. I don't feel like I'm worshiping, Pastor. You're going to be singing in just a few minutes. What does it cost you? Some of you won't even sing because it might cost you embarrassment. Because you don't have a good ear and you might not hit the right note. And someone might think less of you. There's a little song our family loves. It's called, Please Let Me Sing in the Choir. I'll let you go look it up. I don't have time to go into it. Man just wanted to sing to God and he couldn't hit the right notes all the time so he couldn't make it in the choir. Tried out every year, couldn't make it in the choir. But his heart wanted to sing and he didn't care, but the other people cared. Oh, that we would sing without any regard. And this is where costliness and humility join hands. I don't care what you think of me. I am pouring myself out before the Lord. Mary did something incredible here. She put her hair down in public. What's the big deal? Most of our women here have their hair down in public. Well, shame on you. That's what prostitutes did in that day. She didn't care. She lets out her hair and she uses it to anoint her Lord's feet. And not only could she be criticized for the waste of her worship, she could have been criticized for the exposure of her worship. She let out her hair and used that to, to bring this ointment into every part of Jesus' feet. And she could have been easily criticized. What are you thinking? This is a shameful act. We're in public here. What are you thinking? Yes, it's been done before. There was a king of Israel that laid aside all of his garments of glory and honor of kingship and wore just a linen ephod and he danced before the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem and his own wife. Sneered at him. Oh, yeah. And he didn't care. You know why? Because he was humble. Was it extravagant for the king to strip down to the vestments of a slave? Absolutely. Was it to bring attention to himself? Not at all. It was a complete humiliation because he had already learned the lesson from the first time they tried to do it, and a man died because they did it wrong, that he's going to do it right this time, and I'm going to humble myself before the Lord. I'm going to do it God's way, and I'm going to recognize that he gets the glory, and I'm just his servant. And the man 
put himself out there in the garments of slavery. And his wife despised him. And he didn't care. He wasn't judged. She was. She became childless. She was taken away by her father. She had all the problems. Not David. Not from that. Brought glory to God. Could this woman, Mary, had a char- could a charge been laid against her? Would you and I have done that? Probably. She disgraced herself. And the Bible says a woman's hair is her glory. And, and again, we have associated this with the Muslim world. And, and actually, biblical times are probably more like the Muslim view of this. Than, and by the way, Orthodox Jews still behave this way. That the let down hair is really only for your husband. So she lets her hair out, disgracing herself that she might further worship the Lord. The costliness wasn't enough. The humiliation had to be added. As they were bringing that, that ark into, the, into Jerusalem to the tabernacle, it was set up there. They had sacrifices all along the way. The costliness was there, but the humiliation had to join it. Your worship needs to be costly and it needs to be in humility. Not because you want to get attention to yourself. If that's why you're doing the, the extravagance and the, and the lavishness, then you're going to have your reward and it's going to be cheap. And by the way, that, has, that happened in the early church. Here comes Barnabas. He sells a piece of land. He comes to the church and says, here's the toll. Take it. Do whatever needs to be done with it. Wow. But there's a couple of people that didn't see the gift, didn't see the worship, didn't see the honor. Instead, they saw how, boy, everybody thinks well of Barnabas now. I think we'll try it the same way, but I don't like the cost. So we'll sell our land and we'll just give half, but we'll say it was the full price. So how does lying equal worship? Ever. And Ananias and Sapphira paid for it with their life. Because they thought they could worship with pretend extravagance to get glory for themselves instead of humiliating themselves to glorify God. And God says that worship is unacceptable. But I want to contend with you that most worship today that's done in front of people in churches Across this land, and I have found out throughout the earth, not just it's not just Western, it's everywhere, that we're doing most of our acts of worship to see if anyone's looking at me. For a personal attention instead of humiliation. And so we need to look into our hearts and we need to look into our costs. Is our am I really coming here to worship? And I say, What did you give up to come here? Well, I could have slept in, Pastor. I'm missing a ball game. Uh, you have cost you nothing. It does, you don't even have to sweat while you're here because we got the AC running. And we got padded chairs. It doesn't even cost you discomfort other than me stomping on your toes. What does it cost you to worship? Martha paid 
She paid by gladly serving. Simon paid. Use my house, it's completely yours. Let's honor the King of kings and Lord of lords who walks among us. They paid, each one of them, differently, but they each paid. I mean, Martha has got a bigger crowd to serve this time than last time, but she's happy to do it because she's worshiping now. And here comes Mary with a lavish, extravagant gift. I want you to understand something. Mary didn't worship this way every time. Okay? There is a costliness and then there's an extravagance. And I have seen this occasionally in my life. I have been blessed to be in environments where there had to be extravagant worship because of the nature of what was going, God was doing in their midst. And um, it unnerved me, to tell you the truth. Frankly, I'm more like Judas than Jesus here. It unnerved me. I'd been to the church in Hades services multiple times and participated in them, but then I was there on the day I was getting ready to leave when the building walls were all up, the bond beam was done, and they were getting ready to put a roof on, and they knew I was leaving, and that service was completely different than the others before it, and it unnerved me. I'd never been in extravagant worship. It was unsettling. But there it was. Everyone praying out loud, as loud as they could, all simultaneously. Didn't help that it was in Haitian Creole, so I had no idea what anyone was saying. Expressing their thanksgiving to God. They had very little, they had nothing to give but their own breath, voices, and lives bodies. Brethren, there should be days, occasions of extravagant worship. Not to bring attention to ourselves, but because our hearts are so filled with thanksgiving that it is time that I I need to worship in a manner maybe I've never worshipped before. I am confident that this is the one and only time Mary worshipped like this. I have a high degree of confidence that there were very few times that David did what he did that day in going into Jerusalem. Extravagant worship needs to happen in our lives, but I want you to notice how frequently they accompany times of significant repentance. David did it wrong. And he wanted to do it right. And that required extravagant, humiliating worship. Mary, the last time she saw Jesus, she was wrong. She broke his heart with her despair. And now she wanted nothing but to pour herself out and say, you are my king, I am your servant, I will disgrace myself because you are everything to me. And oh, that we would come in our worship sometimes on those occasions in our life when we have been wrong and want to be right, that we come and say, I want to have this, I want to lavishly worship God. Not just in church, but it might be, I don't know where, what environment it is, but I need to lavishly, extravagantly, humiliatingly worship God. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. 
we're going to be seeing now, Lord, and we pray that it might be with all of our heart, mind, soul, all of our voice to reflect what is in our life. Lord, we know it's not much compared to all that we have. Lord, prepare us to worship you better. Lord, we will lavish on our children. We will lavish on our comforts. We will lavish on our entertainment. My family is getting ready to lavish itself on a vacation. Lord, help us to learn how to lavish on you with worship in the days and weeks to come as we study this passage out. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.